0: Welcome to Act In Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. On this episode of Act In Line, we first cover an initiative recently launched by the New York Times called the 1619 Project, which includes school curriculum, videos, and even a podcast. According to the New York Times, quote, the 1619 Project aims to reframe the country's history." Understanding 1619 as our true founding and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. So how should we approach this? And what is the New York Times trying to accomplish with this 1619 project? For this segment, Ishmael Hernandez joins the show. He's the founder and director of the Freedom and Virtue Institute in Florida and the author of Not Tragically Colored, Freedom, Personhood, and the Renewal of Black America. On the second segment in this episode, we take a closer look at the history of socialism. Joshua Moravchik, who's the author of the book Heaven on Earth, explains why he turned from the Socialist Party and why socialism has never worked. If you like this podcast, help us grow our audience by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes, or sharing it with a friend. You can easily find Act In Line on directories like iTunes and Stitcher, plus now we're even on YouTube and Spotify.
1: Welcome to Acton Line. I'm your host, John Caritas. Today we're talking about the 1619 Project. It's a program organized by the New York Times with the goal of reexamining the legacy of slavery in the United States. And I would say furthermore that the goal is to, not only to look at the legacy, but to reframe the history of the United States through the lens of what slavery has done to the nation and its people, And the New York Times casts this forward in a number of ways to talk about how slavery is with us today and has insidious effects, in its own words, on American culture in the 21st century. Today my guest is Ismael Hernandez. He is the executive director of the Freedom and Virtue Institute in Fort Myers, Florida. He is the author of a book titled... Not Tragically Colored, Freedom, Personhood, and the Renewal of Black America, which was published, I believe, in 2016, and you can find it in the Acton Bookshop. We'll put a link to it in show notes. Ismail, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so
2: much for having me with you. I'm excited about uh, speaking about this topic.
1: Let's start by saying a little more about what this 1619 project is. So it was introduced, debuted. In the New York Times Magazine in the middle of August, 100 pages, photo essays. I believe there's a podcast that goes with it. And let me read some of the story headings to give you a flavor of of what the approach is here. I mean, it covers everything imaginable about American culture and history. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who led the project, uh, her article is titled, America Wasn't a Democracy Until Black Americans Made It One. Uh, Matthew Desmond offers uh, an article titled, American Capitalism is Brutal, You Can Trace That to the Plantation, Uh, on and on and on. every aspect of society in America today, quote, Why Is Everyone Always Stealing Black Music? Essay by Wesley Morris. And even How Segregation Caused Your Traffic Jam? Essay by Kevin Cruz. And history of sugar, wealth gap, so on and so forth. So give us your initial reaction to this project, and what do you make of it?
2: Uh, I I can tell you first and foremost that it's very disheartening to see a major uh, newspaper who is read uh, widely uh, by the intellectual class and the sophisticated thinkers uh, on race. It's very disheartening to see that kind of rhetoric that is full of anger and hopelessness, uh, and that is being portrayed as if it were the reality that we live in our country, and when in reality it's simply another aspect of the ideology preventing in for too long now the ideology of white supremacy, structural racism, and seeing African-Americans as victims of forces outside of our control. We are objects moved by forces instead of subjects of meaning, capable of transforming our lives by the choices that we make and they made for so long. So instead of seeing African-Americans really as a great people, we are seen as people who against whom a great crime was committed and continues to be committed. And I think that is really, really sad to hear.
1: You know, I've heard you speak at Acton. You you talk about this and you talk about the paternalism that comes out of this viewpoint and that this victimhood turns people into sort of passive... Uh, they, they lose their agency, their passive victims of this oppressive system that they can't overcome, and it's a very reductionist view of Americans, and it flies in the face of the actual lived experience of millions of black Americans and others from ethnic groups. And your own story, by the way, was very inspirational in this way. Tell us a little bit about how you came to your viewpoints.
2: Well, I I grew up as a Marxist. My father was founding member of the Puerto Rican Socialist Party, heavily aligned with the revolution in Cuba. And long story short, I was on my way to go to Nicaragua, to Sandinista Nicaragua, to fight American imperialism and racism, American racism against the people of color in the world. And it did not happen. Uh, seven Jesuits were murdered in El Salvador, and I was going to be living where they were supposed to be uh, living. And out of concern for us, they did not send us to to Nicaragua, and I left seminary. Uh, I joined seminary because my mom used to sneak me with my brothers to go to mass with friends without my father knowing about it. And and I found in the Jesuit order, where I could have my cake and eat it, too. You know, I could be religious and I could be Marxist at the same time.
1: Right, exactly sir. And,
2: yeah. and, and that, long story short, I came to the United States. I, I ended at the University of Southern Mississippi, of all places. And I, I had a transformation in my consciousness uh, that began. I began to discover certain things that, that I did not that did not square with the safe assumptions of my ideology. And I began to see America through a different lens, through a different prism of understanding. And, and that's the, the story that, that I can bring, and that is the perspective as a black Puerto Rican who used to hate America and now has seen it from a different perspective. And I hope that I can contribute that perspective in this discussion.
1: Now, in your book... Uh, You're talking about this very same type of debate. You say, and I quote, we are are at the crossroads of a great opportunity to reframe the racial debate. A generation invested heavily in the paradigm of eternal victimhood is slowly fading, not by the appropriation of a new paradigm, but simply because of age. Most black intellectuals still cling to the old paradigm, unwilling or unable to. To shift. Yet a new generation of blacks not scorched by the flame of segregation and more interested in universalism is emerging. The possibility of challenging the theory instead of simply elaborating on and reformulating it is real. So, why are thinkers like yourself, uh, Walter Williams, Thomas Sowell, why aren't their ideas, their viewpoints, their paradigms taking a deeper root in the culture? And why are we still getting this, uh, as you put it, the, the uh, eternal victimhood paradigm? Why is that still out there with such potency?
2: Part of it has to do that victimhood, victimhood pays. You know, I mean, there is a, a mirage, an illusion of success, an illusion of, of something to be granted when we see a group of people as, as victims, because there could be eventually in any situation of victimhood where, where, where the victim sees his own reality as victim as a way to perpetuate some benefit. It's illusory, as I said, but th- that reality is there. Second is that the, those who are in control of the narrative about America and about race in this country, unfortunately continue to perpetuate these assumptions about the meaning of what America is and what is at stake in the question of, of race. As I said before, America was founded on a great crime, not on a great idea
1: really they make no bones about it with the 69 project they are attempting to reframe the history of the united states and they're uh going past the founding and all that involved back to the founding of slavery back to the start of slavery what what are they missing mostly what are they missing about the american revolution the founders the long struggle uh against slavery in the first part of the 19th century the civil war doesn't that have any weight with this type of paradigm that they're that they're casting
2: well they are missing that an ideal is not false simply because it is not able immediately to end some kind of perversion on the ground america was founded on the idea of liberty but it was not possible at that moment to, to eradicate the realities of existence in, Amer- in America. You know, what they say that made America in reality was the common lot of humanity. For thousands of years, slavery had been the the, the universal scourge across the globe. So America was not exceptional in, in the sense that something really, really bad happened in, in 1619.
1: That was really... Yeah, all over the Western Hemisphere, for instance.
2: All, all over the Western Hemisphere. So America was consistent with what was happening elsewhere.
1: So that was the historical fact, and in no way do we want to ignore that or deprecate the significance of that, but what you're trying to put that into context, Correct.
2: Absolutely. African-Americans, in my opinion, are the quintessential Americans. They are not victims of forces outside of their control. They were victimized, but their victimization became the background against which the content of their character was forged here in America. They were brought here in chains, and they were strangers to each other. They came from different tribes in Africa, so there was a great evil made, done to them. And they are brought to America where they, do, they cannot even understand each other. They don't understand these, these strangers who have captured them. But even in spite of that reality of, of that shameful reality of oppression, they forged an identity that became quintessentially quintessentially American. And, uh, and that is the, the trust of my understanding, that is that today we are seeing two different understandings of, of what America is and races. One is what I call the Christian natural law integrationist understanding. And the other is the dialectical, materialistic, separationist understanding. And that is the one that the New York Times is affirming.
1: Help us understand those two views. So start with the natural law view. Yeah, the natural
2: law integrationist view of of race in America sees the slave as, as, as an agent of choice, as a subject, not as an object moved by forces. In the natural law, Christian natural law principles, the individual stands sui generis in the midst of the group. His identity and his dignity resides in his person, and yet he is a member of a group. But that that individual African-American within the context of his culture became an American, learned the language, created their own traditions, their own ways of life, and that and and that affirmation, that is an affirmation of what America is. So they embrace what it means to be Americans. They are not Africans in diaspora, but they are in reality quintessentially American. So we want to integrate ourselves as Black people with our distinctiveness, but at the table of brotherhood that America became. And the ideas of America are true. So this idea of natural law is full of hope and optimism about our place at that table of brotherhood.
1: And affirms the human dignity of all.
2: Affirm the human dignity of all, absolutely. We are unique and unrepeatable, made in the image and likeness of God with the moral capacity of self-realization. And no group of people demonstrated that, that moral capacity better than the African-American who was brought here against their will and yet became part of what America is. But the dialectical materialist understanding sees this as a struggle. A great evil has done against us. We have been damaged as a people. We have been traumatized. We are victims of America, and our identity is tied in the absolute to the group. So individual identity is meaningless apart from this collective understanding of consciousness, collective understanding of the human person. And we have to separate ourselves from America, whether it is a physical separation, as some groups, some radical uh, groups have proposed, or to create a totally different identity, an identity that is created precisely in contrast and opposed to the identity of others in America, to the identity of whites in America.
1: A separatist type of movement.
2: It's totally separatist and is full of pessimism. It is extremely pessimistic about the very nature of the society where we live and about the future of blacks within our context. And that's why the New York Times uh, project is calling for a new understanding, a radical transformation of America into something totally different because they had to separate themselves from what it has been. And and I think that that is a disservice, especially to the younger generations of African-Americans who, who see themselves as not belonging to the only society that they haven't ever known about. What is there for us? What is at the end of this road? I ask the people at the New York times, what are you offering? But antagonism and more antagonism and separatism, uh, hate and oppositional attitude towards society. Who is for that?
1: Not me. So, of course, this dialectical materialism viewpoint draws on Marxist thought, and it's all about class struggle, uh, us against them, the oppressive system, which must be overthrown, and it starts with the economy and all other social structures. And let's just say, for the purposes of this discussion that was successful, what kind of country, what kind of culture would they be creating that would lay the grounds for, as you put in the title of your book, Black Renewal, Black Empowerment, what would that do for African-Americans, if they were successful?
2: It will be the the, the end of the American exp- experiment of freedom. It will be the end of the great idea that freedom is the core and the center of our society. It will be the creation of an a, a, something that no one can tell you what will be. It's, you know, Marxism, dialectical materialism explains Uh, in utopian ways, the reality of today, but they cannot tell you what will happen in day one after the revolution ends. In other words, we don't really know what is beyond today, but we have all kinds of theories about grandiose plans for the future that, that never realized. What I see for us is nothing but death. The Death of our people, the death of of the, of the hopes for our people, of the great history. What we need to do in America is renew black history instead of the history of what they did to us is the history. It should be the history of how we overcame all the obstacles in front of us, and now we can stand as brothers and sisters to others in a unique way and that is what what excites me about the natural law understanding of the human person we are not denying the beauty of the african-american culture but we stand in favor of the individual person as the bearer of rights and that is consistent with the american idea that the individual is the one who acts and the person can they move to a better life, to a better and more optimistic reality in America? Uh, Yes, there has been great victimization. Acts of victimization were committed. But there is a difference between becoming a victim and being one. And we don't have to stay there. We don't have to stay in the idea of victimization. We can learn from that background into a more hopeful future.
1: That's about all we have time for today, but I wonder if I could ask you a favor. In your book, Not Tragically Colored, you draw inspiration for the title, the title itself, from a book by Zora Neale Hurston titled How It Feels to be Colored Me, published in 1928. Do you have that book in front of you? Could you read that inscription for us? I think it'd be a nice way to close this conversation.
2: But I am not tragically colored, there is no great sorrow dammed up in my soul nor lurking behind my eyes. Someone is always at my elbow reminding me that I am the granddaughter of slaves. It fails to raise her depression with me. Slavery is 60 years in the past. Slavery is the price I paid for civilization and the choice was not with me. It is a bully adventure and worth all that I have paid to my ancestors for it. No one on earth ever had a greater chance for glory. The world to be won and nothing
1: to be lost. Beautiful. Thank you, Ismail.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it.
0: After giving false hope to millions, Theranos, the health technology company once valued at $9 billion, was exposed for marketing a fraudulent blood testing device and dissolved. Meanwhile, in the pursuit of profit, other businesses face accusations of spiking drug prices, polluting the environment, and implementing unjust pay scales that drive income inequality. These examples of bad business force us to ask, what does good business look like? What does it look like for a company to not just succeed and be profitable, but to do so in a moral way that benefits society? At the Acton Institute on October 16, leading experts and accomplished business leaders will advance a global conversation on important topics like what is good business? What is the deeper meaning of work? How can companies do well while doing good? Join us for this event in Grand Rapids and register today at acton.org slash events. Today, I'm speaking with Joshua Moravchik. He is a distinguished fellow at the World Affairs Institute and is the author of many books, including Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism. Joshua, thank you for coming on to the show.
3: Carolyn, I'm happy to do it, and thank you for asking me.
0: So this book, I was just telling you before we started recording here that I've really enjoyed it because you choose to tell the history of socialism through the stories of the leaders who moved it along throughout history, even starting from the French Revolution. And in the very first few pages of the book, Heaven on Earth, you note how quickly the socialist ideology spread around the world. I I found this part really interesting. You say, quote, Arguably, it was the most popular idea of any kind, surpassing even the great religions. Like them, socialism spread both by evangelization and by the sword, but no religion ever spread so far or so fast. Islam conquered an empire that at its height embraced 20% of mankind. It took 300 years before Christianity could speak for 10% of the world's people— but by comparison within 150 years after the term socialism was first coined roughly 60% of the earth's population found itself living under socialist rule of one kind or another unquote joshua how did how did this happen where did it all begin
3: the the germ of the idea was planted in the french revolution the idea of revolution itself that somehow uh, by a uh, mighty act of political change, even a violent act, uh, the, the world could be made new and mankind could be made new. Uh, and that and, uh, this was just a matter of political will, uh, I- ignoring any consideration of human nature or, or or of why the world, as we know it, is imperfect. And then over the uh, uh, generations following, people developed the idea and then tried to put it into practice in many different ways, never really with success. Why did it spread so so far? Why was it so powerful? I think really because uh, it, it generated an image of transcending the tragedy of life or the limitations of life, that uh, people who adhere to a religious faith, uh, as I do, uh, think that the only conceivable transcendence is in the next world, or or sometimes uh, with some idea of uh, God's kingdom on earth uh, finally arriving. Uh, But uh, this was a sense that you could by political will, make the world perfect and make life perfect, and uh, uh, that's very seductive. Uh, that's that's what the title of, of, of my book is intended to suggest. And actually, it's a phrase, "Heaven on Earth," that I borrowed from various socialist thinkers who who uh, argued uh, in uh, in a sincere, not in a tongue in cheek way, that socialism would create heaven on earth.
0: Uh, One of the things that I noticed when I was reading your book is the irony of some of the arguments of socialist leaders compared with today, the refrains that are made. For example, you hear today that socialism hasn't been done quite correctly yet, but from Robert Owen, who first coined socialism to Marx and Engels, also said the same thing, that socialism had not been done correctly before. Is that a pattern that we've seen every single person who has kind of taken up this socialist ideology has claimed that no one has done it correctly before?
3: Yes, we've heard, I don't know about every single one, Carolyn, but we've certainly heard this refrain over and over again. We hear it today, we've heard it, over the last 30 years, but particularly uh, now since, uh, really since the 2016 campaign when Bernie Sanders uh, broke what, what was kind of a taboo, when a major party political candidate uh, identifying himself as a socialist, but uh, uh, now uh, <laughs> I guess he may be the only presidential candidate who's calling himself a socialist, but uh, there are these members of Congress and other people running for office uh, in the past election who call themselves socialist. Uh, so we have a kind of resurgence. And uh, ever since 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, while I think fair-minded observers have, have said, or followed the, the the leftist economist Robert Heilbroner, who said, "Okay, the the seventy year argument between capitalism and socialism is over," and and he leaned the other way, but he looked at it sort of cold eyed and 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 drew that conclusion. But there have been various voices, and now sort of they're, they're growing into a crescendo with Sanders and the Squad and and and, and, and others that say, "Well." the Soviet Union or the People's Republic of China, they were uh, uh, dictatorships, they're communists, they were different. They don't show anything about whether socialism, if it was democratic and didn't have that dictatorship, would be a good idea. And my answer to that is, okay, fair enough, you can imagine another kind of socialism other than the brutal kind that was done in in communist countries. You can imagine it. But we have also sort of laboratory experiments and people trying to do those other kinds of socialism and people trying to do democratic socialism. And the laboratory experiments come in in two forms. Uh, one form was the uh, the various governments of social democratic and labor parties in Europe who, that came to power uh, intending to create full-on socialism, but to do it democratically, uh, piecemeal, step-by-step, with, with legislation that would uh, socialize property, and that is, take away, you know, private or buy away private capitalist property and create what they call uh, social property in its place. And uh, in all the countries where that was tried, these self-same social democratic or labor parties, after a certain number of years, reversed course or abandoned the effort because the economy started to sink uh, when they did that. Uh, and uh, when for example when it was done in France in the government in the 1980s under the government of Mitterrand uh, after about a year uh, his spokesman said we have to bring about a reconciliation between the left and the economy <laughs> which was uh, a great turn of a, a phrase because they, they saw that that their policies were just sinking things. And then secondly, the other kind of laboratory have been communes. Uh, Starting with Robert Owen, whom you mentioned uh, a moment ago, Carolyn, uh, in the United States, actually uh, uh, scores of them, maybe a a few hundred communes, where people who believed in socialism got together in small groups, had their own communities, and said, okay, we're going to show a different, better way to live. We're going to share all our property. We're going to uh, 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 make all our decisions together and own everything together and work together. And these all failed. They, They fell apart because people couldn't manage to do it.
0: Now, I'm going to switch gears here because at the beginning of the book, in the prologue, you write that socialism was the faith in which I was raised. What drew you away from socialism then? Because your grandfather and your father were both part of a socialist party, and you yourself were a part of the Young People's Socialist League in New York City at the time. So what caused you to leave the socialist party?
3: Well, I was. It, it was my great love and passion. I was uh, in, in, involved in it uh, with enormous uh, commitment, and I was. Uh, for five years, the national chairman of Young People's Socialist League uh, was, the, by the way, an organization to which uh, Bernie Sanders uh, belonged, at least for a while, before he wandered, I think, further to the left. Uh, this group, w- we were always anti-communist. We drew the same distinction that I was alluding to a few minutes ago, that is, that communism or dictatorial socialism isn't real socialism and uh, rather the socialism that we imagined was very free and democratic except for freedom to own uh, significant property that we the core of socialism is sort of rejecting uh, the, the concept of private property but we certainly believed in freedom of the conscience freedom of speech etc But uh, as I contemplated the uh, horror of communism, as I was growing up and learned more about the millions and tens of millions of people who had been slaughtered uh, by these uh, various regimes, I I was tormented by the question, if, if socialism is such a great ideal, why have such terrible things been done in its name, much more terrible than were done by the bourgeois capitalist countries or systems uh, of the West? That was the question that really had me uh, thinking and agonizing. And then I did observe that, that in European countries or israel australia the countries that had social democratic and or labor parties in power those being the parties overseas that i identified with as my fellow believers in democratic socialism i did observe that actually even in power they opted not to try to create real socialism and uh, they, they opted not usually at first try but a, but after they had some failure they usually settled for creating a welfare state of some kind and abandoned the pursuit of socialism and so it it, it sent me to thinking so step by step i was my evolution away from the socialist ideas i held was a slow step-by-step process, but it made me think that the ideal itself was uh, 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 a faulty one.
0: So when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders call themselves democratic socialists, uh, what do they mean by this? Are they using that term correctly?
3: When I think back to myself as a young democratic socialist and my comrades of that era who were also democratic socialists, we took the democratic part of that term very seriously, and we really did feel contempt for uh, the communists or, or any other socialist dictatorial movement. Uh, but the world that Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, etc., et were part of, uh, refused to draw any such distinction. Anyone who was against capitalism was good, and you know, some socialists might be more good than others, Ocasio-Cortez was, uh, and her, her colleagues, and she's part of the Democratic Socialists of America. It, it, you can go to their website and you see they proclaim solidarity with the Bolivarian Revolution. The Bolivarian Revolution is the official name for the Venezuelan regime, uh, starting with Hugo Chavez and continuing on to uh, uh, Maduro. So, when they're expressing their, their their actual ideology, they proclaim solidarity with regimes like that. You can't find on their website, you know, solidarity with the. Moderate social democrats of Scandinavia—they they don't say that.
0: But so many people in my generation put on blinders when these people refuse to denounce dictatorships like that, and they seem to buy hook, line, and sinker into these more Marxist rhetoric lines. For example, during the most recent Democratic debate. Sanders said that, to me, democratic socialism means we deal with an issue we do not discuss enough. He said, you've got three people in America owning more wealth than the bottom half of this country. You've got a handful of billionaires controlling what goes on in Wall Street, the insurance companies, and in the media. Maybe, just maybe, what we should be doing is creating an economy that works for all of us, not just 1%. He goes on to say, that's my understanding of democratic socialism, unquote. (laughs) <laughs> this this kind of uh, rhetoric here is very class—I it, mean, it's based in class struggle, the kind of disparities that he's displaying here. Pew recently reported that about 52 percent of young adults express positive views of socialism. They buy into it. So what, what are they not being told? Why is there such a resurgence among young adults towards socialism?
3: Well, I wish I— Understood. I I would be careful about interpreting these polls because I've seen polls in in which uh, particularly young people are, are very negative when asked what they think of capitalism and are more prone to be positive when asked what they think of socialism. But when asked what they think of free enterprise, they're extremely positive toward that. And so, what they think socialism means and what they think free enterprise means, I'm not sure. So I want to have a, a, a note of caution about interpreting the polls. But certainly, uh, there is a, uh, an, an openness to socialism among younger people that wasn't there before. I don't know the explanation, although I do, I do uh, wonder if there's less history being studied. Uh, than there once was. Uh, socialism in the abstract uh, is, uh, in a sense, just as appealing today as it was 200 years ago with the, the, this idea of transcending the the limitations of life. It, it's an appealing idea in the abstract. The, the world turned away from it because uh, there were these uh, efforts again and again and again to to make some reality of it, and they all either failed or led to catastrophe.
0: If you were to point to one core reason why socialism doesn't work, why it has never worked, why is that?
3: I think it's a, a deep misestimation of human nature. It seizes on one reality, which is that human beings are... Social creatures, we we have a need for other people. Uh, it's not just a practical need; it's also an emotional need. Everywhere in the world, humans live in families and uh, in in communities. But the experiments that we've seen, such as on the Israeli kibbutzim, show that there's another side to human beings. We also have uh, a need for some autonomy and and, uh, and independence and to you know, perhaps uh, 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 link most tightly with our immediate families, uh, but having some space of our own, some distance uh, from other people. And when I studied what had happened on the kibbutzim, uh they did everything collectively, and people who were veterans of this experience told me it drove them crazy. They wanted to do some things for themselves. They wanted uh, to. Uh, uh, some people wanted more uh, uh, more variety of diet. Some people wanted more books. Some people wanted better clothing. Some people wanted uh, more living space, or or. It, 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 that is, people wanted to organize their lives differently. Some people wanted to work really hard and uh, make some extra money, and other people valued more uh, having free time and wanted to work, you know, the the, the uh, minimum amount. And in a socialist community, you couldn't have those. Variations. Everything had to be done sort of on group. And uh, the people who were brought up that way and live that way really didn't like it. It didn't make them happy. So I think that we have to understand that human beings, on the one hand, are social and do need others. But also humans, uh, I think, innately have a desire for... Uh, some measure of autonomy, and I think uh, socialism, if we understand it, you know, at its best, just neglects the second part of that uh, that reality.
0: Joshua, thank you so much for joining me today.
3: You're certainly welcome, Carolyn. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you so much for listening today. Here at Acton, our podcast team is working hard to make a great show for you every week, but I know that we couldn't do it without you. Help us make an even better podcast and reach us at acton.org. I respond to all of the emails and I read all of your feedback. It really matters to me. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Also, if you have any friends who you think would enjoy listening to Act In Line or learn more about the work that Act In Institute does, please share this podcast with them. You can subscribe to this podcast on the usual directories like iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher, but now we're even on Spotify and YouTube. So don't forget to check us out there. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.